Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. To see everything, all needs complete in Him because I've been made complete in Him. Have your Bible this morning. I would invite you to look with me at Zephaniah chapter number 3. And we'll be reading through Zephaniah 3, verse 9 through 20. This, uh, this section of scripture, even though I knew what was coming, caught me off guard as I was studying and reading over this week. And uh, so, like I said, I would invite you to read it with me because hopefully it'll catch you off guard too. Let's start in verse number 8, actually, and we'll read down through verse number 20. Zephaniah writes, Therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms and pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. But then verse number 9. For then will I turn to the people of pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord, to serve him with one consent. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my supplants, even the daughters of my dispersed, shall be mine offering. In that day shall thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride. And thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thy enemies. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not. And to Zion, let not thy hand be slack. The Lord thy God, in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee and whom the reproach it was a burden. Behold, that time I will undo 
that afflicted thee, all that afflicted thee. And I will save her that halted, and gather her that was driven out. And I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the times that I gather you. For I will make you a name and and a praise among all people of the earth. When I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we can't live from bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord, I pray that you make us hungry for your word this morning. I pray that it nourishes us. I ask this in the name of Jesus. As we read through that section, we kind of caught the two themes that we find in the book of Zephaniah. If you were here or were able to listen to last week, which I would encourage encourage you to do, you see the first two chapters and even into the third chapter of Zephaniah is judgment and judgment and judgment and judgment. God explains through the prophet Zephaniah what is going to happen to Israel, his people. And then he goes and tells what's going to happen to the nation. And then he comes back again and explains Israel again. And that's what we found in verse number 8 is his, is his rebuke towards Israel again. Almost to the point where he lumps them in with their enemies. So we have God rebuking and casting judgment toward Israel at the beginning. But he comes back around and and almost lumps them in with their enemies saying, you're going to get the same judgment that your enemies are going to get. But we see this theme even here as we have in every other minor prophet. There is judgment and there is restoration. God doesn't cast judgment without offering restoration. He doesn't cast despair without offering peace. He never gives the law without offering us the gospel. That's the God who wrote the scriptures, and this book is no different than the rest of the books that we find in scripture. As I was studying through this, of this specific passage here, from verse number 9 to verse number 20, Charles Spurgeon wrote, he said, this passage is like a great sea, and I'm going to spend some time making some little pools in the sand. Basically what he was saying is the same thing that I want to say this morning is the passage that we have here is immense. It's huge. And all I'm going to be able to do is to make a little hole in the sand and go and get a little bucket of water and pour it in there. And honestly, by the end of the day, the water will be drained and we won't remember it. But with the help of the Spirit, he will call that back to our memory as we move on through life. In any case, this morning what I want to look at from these verses, and this is in your bulletin if you want to follow along there, is in verse number 9 and verse number 10, we see God's major plans for unity. In verse number 11 through verse number 13, we see God's major plans for humility. And in verse 14 through verse number 20, we see God's major plans for worship. In verse number 8, we start off with these major plans for unity that God is giving us. And it comes kind of in a weird way. And and we mentioned that. 
He says that he's going to gather a people together. He says that in verse number 8. He says he's going to gather all of the nations. He's going to assemble all of the kingdoms. And he's going to bring them together into one place. The picture that is being drawn here is not that God is going to drop his fiery indignation in one place and it's going to spread across everywhere and kind of have time to burn out a little bit. So, you know, if you if you have a, 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 a blowtorch, for example, the heat is, the, is going to be the most intense in the middle, but as you go out, the heat gets less intense. Even around a campfire. If, I, if you were standing in the middle of a campfire, the heat's going to be pretty intense. But the farther you get away from it, the heat gets less and less intense. That's not what God is saying is going to happen here. He's saying he's going to gather everybody into the most intense part of his judgment. He says he's going to gather them where he can pour out his indignation, even his fierce anger, that all the earth be devoured with the fire of his jealousy. He's gathering these people for judgment. And honestly, he's gathering these people for what they deserve. And we've seen that through the past two chapters. We saw why they deserved this judgment. If we look at ourselves, we're no different. The longer we stare at ourselves, the more we'll realize how in need of judgment we really are. How deserving to be judged we are. If we were to go into a courtroom, and I know that may be an analogy that's used often, but if we were to go into a courtroom, we don't go to hear all the good things about us. And we may even think, well, I'm not that bad when we go in. But as the judge is sitting there explaining all of what we have been condemned of, we see what we really are. And when we come to the scripture and we see God for who he is, we will see ourselves for who we are. And we will see ourselves do this judgment. We deserve this intensity of judgment because we have gone against a holy God. And again, I know the analogy has been made that if you know if I, if I kick a dog, nothing's going to happen. But if I slap the president, I'm probably going to jail. We've, in essence, slapped the God of the universe by sinning against his judgment. And for that, we deserve the intensity of whatever it is that he pours out. So we have all these people who are gathered together in verse number 8. God says, I'm bringing them all in one place. But then we have a really surprising development in verse number 9. And I hope you caught that when we were reading through it. He goes from bringing all these people into one place to judge them. And it's almost like there's a complete 180 that's done here in the text. He says, for then will I turn to the people of pure language. He says, I'm going to bring you all together to pour out judgment. But instead of pouring out judgment, I'm going to change your speech. I'm going to change the way you talk. I'm going to change the way you think. I'm going to change the way that you do things. He says he's going to make them he uses that language. He says, I'm going to give you a pure language. If we find these people who are, who are dripping with iniquity, they're dirty people. But God's going to make them pure. And he doesn't even give any question that he's going to do this. 
He doesn't say, I'm going to bring you together, and if I think that, that you are worthy, I'm going to make you pure. Or, I'm going to bring everybody together, and if I like you, I'm going to make you pure. Or, if you're doing good, I'm going to make you pure. He says, for then will I turn to the people of pure language. There, there was this pretty declarative statement. God isn't saying that I might do something. He said, I am going to do this. Why is he doing it? Why is God going to take people who deserve judgment and make them pure? The prophet tells us that they may all call upon the name of the Lord. His motive was pretty simple. He said, I'm going to make them pure so they're mine. The ones that he was bringing to judge, he's making his. If you're not, if you're not beginning to see the, the light of the gospel shine through, I hope you yeah. will begin to as we go on. But he's making his enemies his people. He says, I'm going to make them call upon the name of the Lord. I'm going to change their language, and they're all going to call upon the name of the Lord. And we understand, even from the point in time when we went through the book of Romans, and we studied Romans 10, that this was another prophecy from Job. In Job 3, Job said, There will come a day when all will call upon the name of the Lord. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. You find out Peter tells the people standing there at Pentecost, this has been fulfilled in your ears. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And again, we understand what that meaning was from the Old Testament as we went through the book of Romans. This idea of calling upon the name of the Lord is the same, is the same idea as me calling myself an American. I identify as an American. Or calling myself by my last name. I identify by my last name. He says they're, he's bringing them all together to change their language, and they're all going to begin to say, this is our God. That's what Paul was explaining in the book of Romans. He was explaining to those Jewish people in chapter number 10 why there were Gentiles who were saying, that's my God. Because the Jews were like, you can't have him and he's ours. So Paul is explaining. They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. And because they believed the gospel, that gave them the right to call God their God. It was belief. He tells us that in Galatians. He says it wasn't Abraham's seed. It was Abraham's belief that makes you Abraham's seed. We can see this stuff being fulfilled in part in the New Testament as it was prophesied in the Old Testament. We do have that now and not yet, even in this prophecy that we're reading this morning. But we see those things being fulfilled through Christ. We see them being fulfilled in the church. We've made reference to before. There, there are different groups of people even sitting here this morning. There are different financial statuses. There's different backgrounds. There's different everything. But we're all calling on the Lord. We're all identifying 
with Christ together this morning. We're seeing this happen in the church. God is bringing people who are different together, and they're all identifying themselves in Christ. God says this is going to happen on a worldwide scale at a point in time in history. That's the day we long for. We long to see your churches full, the song says. But God is taking all these people who are deserving of judgment, and instead of consuming them, he purifies them. All these people who were separately disobedient are brought into unity under the banner of God's love. Because that's who we see in this text. We see the God of judgment in verse number 8, but we see the God of love in verse number 9. He's the same God. Just like at the cross, we see the God of judgment pouring out his wrath. We see the God of love absorbing the wrath so that people can come to him. So we have this plan for unity, this major plan for unity in verse number 8 and verse number 9, and even into verse number 10, because he talks about all of the people he's bringing together. But in verse number 11, we see plans for humility. We see that in verse number 11, as you read there, it says, In that day shall thou not be ashamed for all thy doings. Wherein thou hast transgressed against me. So he tells them, all these things that you did against me, you're not going to be ashamed for them because I'm taking them away. I'm taking your iniquities and I'm putting them at the bottom of the ocean. I'm casting them as far as east is from the west. I'm doing away with them. There's nothing for you to be ashamed of. The book of Isaiah tells us that Christ has borne our griefs. He has taken our sorrows. The grief and the sorrow for sin, he's taking it away. He tells us here in this text, he says, you don't have to be ashamed of all your doings, the ways that you transgress me because I'm making you pure. He continues in verse number 11 and says, For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice and that pride. And I will, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. So he's saying that these proud people are going to be abased. They're going to be brought low. He's going to be taking them from up here. He's going to bring them down to here. And he specifically calls out that they were haughty because of my holy mountain. He's speaking of those people here. And we, we see this as we look through the minor prophets. We see both people who are going against God, not loving God, and people who are abusing their neighbor, not loving their neighbor. But both of these groups are going to be brought based. They're going to be brought down. There were leaders in that day, and most of these minor prophets that you read through are rebukes to the leadership of Israel because they had in their pride thought, well, we're God's people, we have God's holy mountain, we have the tabernacle, the temple, we have all of these things. Nothing can hurt us. We're, we're good. If you remember back to the book of Hosea, what did God tell them? He said, I don't care about your sacrifices. I'm tired of the blood that you are shedding of bulls and goats. 
He says, that was never the point. That was to point you to me, not for you to take confidence in yourself. He said, those who were haughty because of my holy mountain, we brought down. The confidence that they had in who they were, the confidence that they had in themselves, will be taken away. Think about Paul. A similar, similar thing happened to Paul. So to the point that in Philippians he says, I don't want to know anything but Christ. I've counted everything but dung so that I can win the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. So God's saying these people who were haughty because they were God's people. They had God's holy mountain. But they didn't know who God was themselves will be brought down. Not only will the proud be abased, but in verse 12 and 13, all those who are poor and afflicted will be satisfied. So he's bringing the pride down. For verse number 12, he says, I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. He said, all these people that are picking themselves up, raising themselves up, boasting in their own selves, I'm bringing them down. And guess who I'm leaving? So I'm leaving afflicted people. I'm leaving poor people. I'm leaving weary people. All the people that you think are nothing, those are the ones who are going to be left. Because you're all going to be brought onto the same plane. If you notice, he says there in verse number 11, they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The ones who were left are the ones who were trusting. Even now, if we have confidence in ourselves and are not looking to Christ for salvation, we are not going to be the ones who are left. Because the ones who are left are the ones who are in Christ. Christ was the only one who could survive the, the indignation Towards sin. The only ones who could be left are the ones who are in Him. The ones who are left are the ones who are trusting. And they are found in themselves and of themselves to be afflicted and poor people. I couldn't help but think as I was reading that. You're looking at people who are afflicted and poor and weary and lowly. What did Jesus say of himself? He's gentle, he's lowly, apart. When Jesus talks about who he is in the New Testament, when he gives us his heart, he says, I'm gentle and lowly. And what people do we find here? People who can only stand under a gentle and lowly God. People who are weak and weary. He's giving grace to the weary. Is that not what God does? He says even throughout other sections of Scripture that He will bring the proud down, but He will exalt the lowly. This is what Zephaniah is explaining here. Verse number 13 says, The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall any deceitful tongue be found in their mouth for they feed and lie down and none make them afraid. 
He said, there's going to be a group of people. Then when I look at them, I see nothing evil. I don't see deceitful tongues. I don't see iniquity. I don't see lying. Why? Because they feed and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Nobody's going to scare them into anything. Typically, why do we lie? Because we're scared of getting caught. Why do we do iniquity? Why are we people full of iniquity? Because we don't have things to satisfy us. We try to find satisfaction in different things. We try to find satisfaction in sin. If our, if our marriage is going bad, we try to find satisfaction somewhere else. If we're stressed out, we may try to find satisfaction in some type of substance. But God said that these people, these weary people, they're not going to be speaking lies. No iniquity is going to be found because they're going to be satisfied in Him. They're going to feed and lie down. They're going to find their satisfaction and they're going to find their rest in their God. And nobody's going to take it away from them. He says, none shall make them afraid. So this plan, this major plan for unity, God's bringing all the people together. A major plan for humility, God is bringing down the proud and he's exalting the humble. But in the last section of this chapter, and in the last section of Zephaniah, verse number 14 to verse number 20, we see major plans for worship. Verse number 14, he says, Sing, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. God is telling them, you're free to worship. Be excited about this. Sing, shout. Be glad, rejoice. God has this plan for worship. We understand now that all of these things were fulfilled in Christ. As we look down through these things, we're going to see Christ. We're going to see our reason for worship and God's plans for worship in the person of Christ. Because he's the one that fulfills it. So what reasons did God give here for the people to worship? Verse number 15. The first section of that, he says, The Lord has taken away thy judgment. When you realize that God's anger for sin is gone because of Christ, that he's taken away the judgment that's against you, it's a pretty good cause to rejoice. It's a pretty good thing to be happy about when you realize that all the bad things that were in your debt, all the bad things that you had to pay, when you realize that all of those things have been taken out of the way, it's a good reason to get excited. If I found out tomorrow that somebody had taken away all of my debts, I would be pretty excited about that. But even farther than that, our eternal judgment has been taken away. All of the sin that we have heaped up our whole lives, that judgment that God has for that sin has been taken away. God says to rejoice when you realize that in Christ your sins have been taken away. What is he going to say? Verse number 15. He has cast out thine enemies. 
What enemies do we have? And the scripture's pretty plain. In and of ourselves, guilt for sin, shame for sin, shame of sin, the punishment for our sin, all of those things were our enemies. They were all running after us. They were all chasing us. Guilt, shame, and punishment for sin. Those are enemies that we have. But even in the New Testament, we see the world, the flesh, and the devil are our enemies. God says, rejoice. Your enemies have been taken away. Go over and read the book of Colossians. Paul writes that Jesus has taken our sins out of the way, nailing them to his cross. And then he goes on to say that he has made an open display of the enemies of God. In ancient cultures, they didn't have social media, they didn't have Facebook, YouTube, they couldn't make a video clip and show it to everybody all that they had won. So what they would do is they would have parades. When a conquering king would go into a place, typically what they would try and do is take the ruler of that nation alive. That's the reason you find a lot of rulers in history committing suicide because they were not going to be taken alive. Because they would do the same thing that the Philistines did to Samson. They made a show of it. They didn't just say, hey, we won. This was going to be the news for everybody around for as long as they could make it. What they would do is they would typically have the conquering king and chained to the back of his chariot or his horse or whatever it was that he was riding through the streets, chained to the back, basically being drug around, was the king that he conquered. That's what Paul says that Christ did at the cross. He took Satan, he took sin, he took death, and he is dragging them behind him. He's not just saying, hey, I won. He's making sure everybody knows exactly who the conqueror is. Verse number 15, we can rejoice because our enemies have been dealt with. When we look at the cross, we can rejoice in what was done. Even though we do deal with, on a daily basis, the remnants of those enemies, what does Paul tell us in Romans chapter number 16? He says, the serpent will be crushed under your feet shortly. But again, we covered that whenever we went through the book of Romans. Not too long ago, I killed a snake myself. It was a snake little copperhead in the road in front of our house. And I cut his head off. It wouldn't stick. Couldn't have a show, so I thought it would stick. Cut the head off, and as we mentioned when we were reading through the book of Romans, what does the rest of the body of that snake do? It wiggles around. It has no power, but it's wiggling around. Christ crushed the head of the serpent at the cross. And in the world around us, we see that remnant of the serpent still wiggling around. But what Paul promises the church that that serpent will be crushed under their feet shortly. God has dealt with our enemies. And though we may see remnants of our enemies even in our own lives, they've been dealt with. 
We don't have to. We don't have to stress over being bitten by a snake because that snake has been dealt with. He's saying, rejoice. God has made an open show of your enemies. You don't have to worry about them. They've been dealt with. So he tells us to rejoice over our judgments being taken away, to rejoice over our enemies being dealt with. And again in verse number 15, that third line, the king of Israel. And just so you're not confused, even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Why else can we rejoice? Because God is in the midst. What did Isaiah say? There'll be a son born, and he'll call his name Emmanuel. Being translated means what? God with us. In the person of Christ, God is in the midst of us. And he's promised that even though he ascended, he wasn't going to leave us alone. He's going to send another comforter. Not only is God in the midst of us as we come together, but he's even in the midst of us indwelling us with his spirit. We can rejoice because God has taken on flesh that he may dwell in the midst of us. All fear can be cast out because we know God is here. So is it to rejoice because your judgment's been taken away? To rejoice because your enemies have been dealt with? Rejoice because God is in the midst of you. Verse number 17, we see another reason. The Lord, thy God, is in the midst of thee. In the midst of thee is mighty. So we know he's still in the midst. What else does he say about us? He will, he will save. He's going to deliver you. And not only that, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. We can rejoice because we know that God rejoices in us. This is the picture that God has given of this group of people. Not only has he taken his enemies and made them his people, but he is literally rejoicing over them. Resting in his love. So to the point that he says, the Bible says that he will join over thee with singing. We can rejoice in the fact that God is rejoicing over us. Just like the prodigal's father. When the prodigal came up the road, the father rejoiced. He gave him the ring, he gave him the road, killed the fatted calf, we're having a party. It's the same God we see here in Zephaniah. He's saving the people and he's rejoicing in them. He's finding delight in a group of people who didn't deserve it. He's taken his enemies, he's adopted them, and he's delighting in them as his children. We can rejoice in that. Verse number 18. Why else can we rejoice? Verse number 18 says, I will gather them that are 
your sorrow for the solemn assembly who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was, was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflicted thee. I will save her that is haunted. I will gather her that was driven out. And I will give praise. I will give them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. What God is doing here? He said, those who are sorrowful, I'm bringing them back. Those who had a reproach that was, was a burden for them, I'm taking it away. The halt, the one who couldn't get there themselves, the one who was lame, who was paralyzed, what does he say? Go save her. And nobody's getting left behind. Nobody's being trampled just because they can't make it themselves, because they're too weary to get there themselves. The faith that they have is so weak that they can barely get by. God says, I will save her that is halted. All the ones who have been driven out, gathering them up. This is why we say what we do at the beginning of every service. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, Jesus says, come. God says, I will bring you to me. All who are weary, all who are heavy laden, all of who are weak and can't get to me yourself, I'm coming for you. God gives us all of these reasons to be worshiping Him. Major call for worship. Of all of this text, when the rubber meets the road, so to speak, as we're sitting here, thinking about these things, reading over these things, when we think about the judgment that God was going to pour out, we can think about the Christ that took it away. And we can rejoice in that. It ought to bring us unity as a people. It ought to bring us humility because it wasn't us. It's been said before, if any of us ever get to the point where we think that we don't need as much grace as the next guy, we miss the boat. I was talking to somebody not that long ago. I was talking about someone that had an influence on their life by showing them love that they had, had fallen into sin and that everybody had written them off. But that, and the question was asked, is it not true that God still loves them and that God still uses them even though they've done something that disqualified them from, from service? The answer is yes. Because the day that I think that I need less grace than him is the day that I misunderstand the grace of God altogether. The day that I look around at anyone and think, I don't need quite as much grace today as they do because I'm better than they are. When I missed it. There's no cause to rejoice in myself. That's why God brings this plan for humility. We have this plan for worship. And all this is fulfilled in Christ. 
rejoice in the judgment that we see because the judgment's been taken care of in Christ. The God who judges our sin has taken it away. That was what the prophet was saying. And as we close out this book, how does Zephaniah end it? Just so we're not wondering. So there's no question on whether or not God really has plans for unity, on whether or not God really has plans for humility, on whether or not God really has plans for our worship. What does Zephaniah say? Save the Lord. That was the job of the prophet. Thus saith the Lord. And because we have scriptures, all of us can look at each other in complete confidence. Tell each other, tell ourselves, our judgments have been taken away. Why? Because when God, who couldn't find anyone else to swear by, he swore by himself. Thus saith the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to look at your gospel even in the Old Testament. Thank you for the prophet of Zephaniah that gives us the hope that we can find unity, liberty, and worship. It's something that was foreign to us at one point. Things that the gospel has come to us. We've given the ability to believe. And Lord, I pray that you will help us as days go and come. May you help us continue to trust the words that we have said. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God from